The verses we've looked at over the past couple of months and the messages that I have shared with you have been, for me, uh, challenging and convicting. I hope they will be transformational and have been already to some degree. And I hope and pray that's the case for you as well. And yet, as powerful as the words of Jesus have been to this point in the Sermon on the Mount, the verses we're going to look at today and going forward from today will challenge us on a whole different level. This is rubber meets the road kind of stuff we're talking about here. We've been instructed by our Savior to this point as to how we are to be, and now Jesus begins to instruct us how this is to manifest itself in our lives. We're going to read, uh, for the last time, the Beatitudes this morning before we move into salt and light next week. So I'd ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We'll be in Matthew chapter 5, of course, beginning in verse 2. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. And he, that is Jesus, opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The reading of God's word will be blessed. Please be seated. A recent article from the advocacy group known as Open Doors revealed that in 2022, over 360 million Christians experienced, quote-unquote, high levels of persecution and discrimination. Just for context, that was 20 million higher than in 2021. The group also estimated that worldwide the number of Christians killed for their faith rose to 5,898 in 2022, up from 4,761 in 2021. You see the, the countries there with the highest rates of persecution, Afghanistan, North Korea, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen. As I have read these reports and, and others, somewhat with graphic details, of the brutality that is ongoing even as we sit here very comfortably this morning in our air-conditioned padded seats. Reports of the unspeakable persecution of those who are our Christian brothers and sisters, and they are around the world, as I hear that, no, no small part of me feels a little bit ashamed at the feebleness of my faith and the apathy of my attitude. When I hear about the torture and the rape and the beheadings and the murder and the imprisonment of Christian men and women who, but for their language and skin color, perhaps, are like you and me, God's children. There's a sense 
what it feels kind of like guilt that rises up in me. And when confronted with the details and the degree of the brutality, I have, I've been moved to tears at times, just like, just like you have when you've read those horrific accounts. But for me, not just tears of, of sorrow for the, for the suffering of, of my brothers and sisters in Christ, but also tears of regret for my faithfulness, faithlessness, and, and fruitlessness. This issue of persecution is one which most of us are at least somewhat aware, yet we, we probably don't spend a great deal of time uh, thinking about it, and, and I wonder why is that? And I thought, well, maybe it's, maybe it's just a lack of awareness with regard to the severity of the persecution that is ongoing, because the media doesn't usually, rarely reports it, and if they do, they don't report it in full. Or maybe it's just the out-of-sight, out-of-mind dynamic at work. After all, most of this persecution is half a world away. Or maybe it's just that our plates are so full, and we're trying to juggle our jobs and our family and and our school and ball games and, and church activities. But what I hope, beloved, what I hope we never do is is begin to imagine that persecution on the scale that happens in other countries is simply not our lot in life. Because we've been so blessed here in the United States. And listen, it's hard to relate. I get it. It's hard to relate because we absolutely do have it so good. Here in the United States, because we are so safe and so comfortable here. We can attend church and pray and meet with fellow believers and read the Bible pretty much whenever and wherever we want without the threat of legal ramifications. But millions of our brothers and sisters around the world simply cannot do those things, those simple things, without facing consequences, often dire consequences. And and though the differences in the type and degree of persecution are are obviously vastly different, religious persecution in the United States no longer, I want to suggest to you, no longer just hovers on the distant horizon. It's already here, at least for some. It's begun with bakers and florists, with county clerks and photographers, And a few outspoken preachers and abortion clinic prayer warriors. But before long, before long, it may be that mere faithful biblical expositions in our church pulpits will be labeled as hate speech. It's conceivable that in the very near future, speaking in opposition by anyone, which is to say, I'm talking about speaking from a biblical perspective, speaking in opposition to anyone, to the ever-worsening, perverse morality that pervades our nation, speaking in opposition because you believe something is morally wrong, biblically wrong, sinful, will be labeled as hate speech. And the critic, anyone, not just church leaders now, anyone, will face legal penalties. For 350 years, the church in America has enjoyed relatively little persecution for her faithfulness to the Scriptures. But we've got to understand that this is a unique situation in the history of nations. And yet those days are passing more quickly than we might have imagined. Not so long ago, the the most basic beliefs and, and moral teachings of Christianity were taken for granted in society. 
not just in the church, but in society at large. And now our most deeply held, those once largely unquestioned claims are under full assault. And not just outside the church. Sadly, there are individual churches and whole denominations, even entire religions, that have allowed the culture to influence them rather than the other way around. And I can't help but wonder if barring some change in direction and momentum, and I say direction and momentum because things are not only going in the wrong direction, but they're going in the wrong direction at a greater and greater speed. I can't help but wonder if it's not just a matter of time before religious liberty as we have known it is a thing of the past. Just a matter of time before opposing the cultural norms on moral issues from a biblical perspective will be criminalized in this country, as is already the case in our neighbor to the north. Al Mohler, in his book, The Gathering Storm, writing about what many so-called intellectual elites and others have been saying for years, writes these words, Religious liberty is to be tolerated so long as believers keep their religion in their hearts, homes, and pews. No public significance. Keep your religion, your religious beliefs where they belong, out of public view. That, Moeller writes, is the denial of religious liberty. Many biblical conservative thinkers, like Dr. Moeller, fear, and fear is the right word here, beloved, that we are witnessing Nothing less than the collapse and retreat of any secular notion of human rights and and human dignity that would include religious liberty as we've known it. Church family, the reality is that secularization has rapidly accelerated in our culture. And listen, we can debate the causes. We can speculate about the ultimate agenda of secularists and intellectual elitists and radical leftists. But the bottom line doesn't change, and it's this. Belief in God, any theistic belief, has been inundated by the rising tide of secularism. This is undeniably the case among the vast majority of those teaching in our colleges and universities, by those on the far left of politics and science and religion and arts and others, who are bent, beloved, not just on overhauling our culture, but upon deconstructing our culture and recreating a vastly different one, one to their own liking, one that does not leave room for anyone who does not think like they do, one that leaves no room for faith in the God of the Bible. There was a time, and it was not so long ago, when secular elitists merely reduced God to a symbol and religion to a hobby. That was bad enough. But now they see God as a dangerous symbol and, and religion as a disreputable, even threatening hobby. Church, we ought to already be awake to this reality. I hope that we are, but if we're not, we better wake up soon. Because regardless of your dispensational view. The storm is indeed gathering. The first thing Jesus wants us to understand is that persecution is a reality. 
He's just being straightforward here with his original hearers and with us. He knew that there would be times in our lives when we would face persecution. And he said so. If he, to paraphrase Jesus, he said, if you're going to follow me faithfully, if, you, if you're going to walk in my footsteps, if you're going to be like me, be a true Christian, then you are going to suffer persecution. Suffer as he did. John records his words in John 15, verse 20. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But in keeping with the theme of the, of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who persecuted or persecuted. Now, it's important for us to understand here what Jesus does say and what Jesus does not say. He doesn't say that... We'll be blessed if we're persecuted because we have an obnoxious personality. Now, if you're being persecuted because you are being obnoxious, you probably ought to be. And, of course, that's none of us here. None of us are obnoxious, and, and, and we're not even close to it. But, but I'm sure, like me, you've known someone who's like that, or you know someone like, right now who's like that. And we would all likely agree that obnoxious people need a little persecution from time to time just so they won't drive us crazy. Jesus also does not say that we will be blessed if we're persecuted because we're fanatical. Beloved, I'm just going to be honest with you. I hate to admit, I hate to mention, excuse me, this at all because there's so little danger of this happening to most Christians in our country. That is being fanatical. Far from being overly enthusiastic and standing out in the crowd when it comes to our faith in Jesus and the Bible and the church for which he died, we're far more often apathetic. And with regard to passion, sadly, indistinguishable from those who don't know Christ. Sadly, there are a lot of Christians who, if they decided to slow down, would be going backwards. And as unlikely as it might, might seem or might be to see a Christian as excited about their Savior as they are their favorite football team, Jesus is not talking about being persecuted simply because we're fanatical. He's also not saying we'll be blessed if we're persecuted because we firmly believe in a particular cause, however noble that cause might be. Now listen, standing for, for righteousness and standing for a cause may be one and the same. It may be a righteous cause for which you were standing. But standing for a just cause is not necessarily standing for Christ. And we've got to make that distinction, church. In fact, some people have undergone martyrdom for the sake of their cause. They, they see it as a, as a way to attract attention to their cause. Environmentalists come to mind. So they've taken certain risks and they've been persecuted, but this is not what Jesus is talking about. And finally, he's not talking about our being blessed because we're persecuted for being good. We may be a good and decent person, the kind of person who would give someone the shirt off their back and not be righteous. As a matter of fact, the world is usually quick to praise good folks, decent, selfless people. In fact, most folks think that's all it takes to be a Christian. But when the world praises a person, when the world calls a person good and decent, that ought to at least give us pause when the world says that. That's not what Jesus is talking about. So what is he saying to us? What does he mean when he talks about being persecuted because of righteousness? And we find the answer in verse 11 of our text. 
where Jesus says that all of this persecution comes to us because of Him. To be righteous very simply means being like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And those who have lived for Him down through the centuries have always been persecuted. Have you ever heard of the term Christianophobia? Probably a new term for many of you. It literally means fear of Christians. But just as, as few people are, are, are genuinely afraid of homosexuals, the literal meaning of homophobia, so very few people are actually fearful of Christians. Christianophobia refers to the state of being anti-Christian, of being hateful or spiteful to Christians, fears and or hates Christians, a Christophobe does, and what they stand for. And the existence of Christianophobia shouldn't surprise any of us. You might not have called it that, but you knew that it existed. Jesus himself predicts the world's hatred for Christians. Again, if the world hates you, he says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Listen, beloved, as Christians, we are, we are not called to be conformed to the world, but to be transformed by the renewal of our minds that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And the unbelieving world does not get that, cannot get that. And it will hate those who follow Christ. Now, now few would, would admit to an actual hatred of Christians, although that number is growing. And as I said earlier, in America, what hatred we do experience is relatively mild. But, but the Christianophobia in, in our country today, I suggest to you, is merely a foretaste of what is to come. As the world increasingly, as our nation increasingly turns away from God, the hatred of God's people will increase exponentially. Christianophobia is real. It is increasing. And according to the Bible, it will get much worse as the end times approach us. Ultimately, Christianophobia is satanically driven. Satan hates God. And as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Satan is the god of this world. And as such, he controls the evil world system that hates God and hates his followers. But beloved, thankfully, we have nothing to fear. As followers of Christ, we are those who will in Christ overcome. Knowing all these things, Paul writes, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. John writes in 1 John 4, 4, Greater is he that is God who is in us, that is Christians, than he that is Satan who is in the world. And the persecution of today's Christians places us in a long line of those who have already experienced great persecution for the cause of Christ. Consider what life was like for the early believers. Let's say a stonemason came to know Christ. And he was told to carve a statue or a, an image, a shrine, to a pagan god, what was he to do? Or suppose a tailor became a follower of Christ, and then he was commanded to fashion clothing for the local priests of some fertility goddess. 
What was he supposed to do? A better question is what would you and I do? Or whatever you and I would do, many of our brothers and sisters in the early church refused and suffered extreme persecution because they would not renounce their faith in the Lord. The early Christians knew where their loyalty should be. A businessman once approached one of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Tertullian. You've heard that name before. He had a business problem. He described his predicament, and then he said, What can I do, Tertullian? I must live. And then Tertullian, being the faithful man of God that he was, said, Must you? Beloved, like Tertullian, we need to understand that the most important issue for us as Christians is not living or being free from persecution, but obediently following Christ. Following Christ also made a rubber-meets-the-road difference in the early Christian social life. Many of the feasts of that day would be held in the temple of a local god. Even a regular meal at a neighbor's house would begin by a cup of wine being poured out in honor of the gods. And what was a Christian to do? And the answer is they had to make a choice. They had to make a choice to cut themselves off from all of that. And off not meant cutting themselves off from family and longtime friends. Following Christ in those days could, could lead to, to one paying the ultimate price, the most severe price of all. There were hundreds and thousands of Christians, perhaps millions even, who willingly laid down their life, their right to life, rather than renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Rome ruled the world in that day with an iron fist. The emperor was considered a god. Every year it was required that, that every person go to the local temple and burn a, a pinch of incense in honor of Caesar and, and utter these words, Caesar is Lord. Nothing more than a confirmation of one's political loyalty. After the person burned his pinch of incense, and re he received this official certificate which stated that he had... Perform, he had done that. He would performed this ritual to Caesar. And then and only then was he, quote-unquote, free to go and worship any god he wanted to worship. But untold numbers of Christians refused to do that. And they were mercilessly, mercilessly tortured and, and killed for their commitment to Christ. One of the most famous martyrs was a man by the name of Polycarp. He was bishop of Smyrna. He was brought before the Roman authorities and given that inevitable choice, make Make your sacrifice to Caesar or be burned to death. Here's what he said. Eighty and six years have I served Christ, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And they brought him to the stake, and they lit the fire. And here's his last prayer. O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your well-beloved and ever-blessed Son, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, I am thankful that you have graciously thought me worthy of this day and this hour. Listen to the way one writer has described the persecution that Christians have suffered. And I want you to know I wrestle with including this. And I'll wrestle with it in a second service because there will be more young folks there. But I think it's important that we hear this. The entire world knows of the Christians who were flung to the lions or burned at the stake. 
But these were kindly deaths. Nero wrapped Christians in pitch and set them alight and used them as living torches to light his gardens. He sewed them into skins of wild animals and set his hunting dogs upon them to tear them to death. They were tortured on the rack. They were scraped with pincers. Molten lead was poured hissing upon them. Red hot brass plates were affixed to the tenderest parts of their bodies. Eyes were torn out. Parts of their body were cut off and roasted before their eyes. Their hands and feet were burned while cold water was poured over them to lengthen the agony. These are not pleasant things to think about, but these are the things a man had to be prepared for if he took his stand for Christ. And yet it goes on even in our day. Just a couple of years ago, a group of 12 Christians, including the 12-year-old son of a Syrian missionary who had established nine house churches in the area were brutally murdered by Islamic militants in a village outside of Aleppo, Syria, for refusing to deny Jesus Christ. The 41-year-old missionary leader, his young son, and two other workers were told to renounce Christ before a crowd of onlookers, but they refused to do so. The captors responded by severing the boy's fingers and offering to stop if his father would convert back to Islam. But the father refused, and they were tortured and beaten and crucified. One witness said they were all badly brutalized and then crucified. They were left on the crosses for two days. No one was allowed to remove them. Signs were posted nearby that read, Infidels. The group included two women who were abused in public by the militants. Villagers said of those women that they were praying in the name of Jesus. Some of them were praying the Lord's Prayer, and some of them lifted up their hands to commend their spirit to Jesus. One of the women looked up and seemed to almost be smiling as she said, Jesus. Beloved, it is a reality that if we are truly and uncompromisingly committed to Christ, we will experience persecution to some degree, even here in the United States. But when you understand what many of the saints before us have endured and what so many are enduring in our own day, what horrific atrocities are being daily inflicted upon our brothers and sisters in Christ, the little persecution we may be called to endure pales in comparison. So persecution is a reality, and then persecution calls for a response We understand that persecution is apt to come our way, some form, some fashion, but then how are we to respond? Jesus says we should rejoice and be glad. What in the world is he talking about? I mean, I mean can, he, can he be serious here? And what we need to understand is that Jesus was not saying that persecution in and of itself should make us happy. There's nothing joyous about persecution. We've read some of these horrific accounts this morning. He's obviously not saying that we should rejoice because of the persecution. Well, what he's saying is that we should rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. We should rejoice because of our reward, beloved. It's interesting that the, that the word used here, which is translated and be glad, literally means to leap for joy. So what is meant 
here is great enthusiasm for great news. You and I understand there are different levels of happiness. Someone calls you on the phone and says, boy, you're the lucky winner today. You've won $50. You're probably not going to get too excited about that. It's better than a poke in the eye with a sharp stick, but it's not even enough to fill your tank with gasoline. But if someone, they call you back in just a few minutes and say, you know, we made a mistake. You actually won the grand prize. You won a million dollars. Now, you're probably going to get excited about that, right? That's a whole other kind of happiness. That might get you up off the couch and out the door. There are different levels of gladness. Jesus is saying those who are persecuted because of righteousness have a reward that is so wonderful that it is worth jumping and shouting about. That's his promise. This is something of what Peter speaks when he writes, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So, beloved, we can be joyful in the midst of persecution because we know that God has His sovereign hand on our life and His Spirit is doing a work in our life, preparing us for the home for which we were always created. So when persecution comes our way, we're not to become bitter or to cower in fear or even to look for a way out. We're to rejoice. After all, we're heirs to the kingdom. Paul said in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So whatever we go through here in this life, it's nothing compared to the glory that awaits us in heaven. And we're in good company, aren't we? We're just joining this long line of God's prophets who were hounded by those who rejected their message. Great is our reward in heaven if we suffer persecution for Christ's sake. So if one day we we find ourselves being persecuted because we're like Jesus, we need just to hang in there. The glory that will one day be revealed to us will make it all worthwhile. As I said earlier, Borrowing from the title of Dr. Moeller's book, The Storm is Gathering. I believe that to be true. In fact, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the storm is already here. And yet, and yet it is our challenge as Christians facing persecution, whatever that may look like, whatever form that may take in your lifetime, It is our task to remain hopeful, joyful, loving, and faithful as the culture hardens against us and castigates the truth to which you and I hold fast. In fact, I would suggest to you that we have the greater responsibility because we've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that is the only true foundation for human dignity and human rights. We have the greater responsibility because we know that every life at every age is precious. 
We have the greater responsibility because we have the truth and we know why it's truth. We have the responsibility because we know that male and female, He created them. And God does not make any mistakes. We have the greater responsibility because we know why marriage can only be the union of a man and a woman. And because we know why the home, the family must be protected at all costs. Because we know why wrong is wrong and right is right. Because we know that life is not meaningless and that the truth and right are not something that society gets just to arbitrarily decide and then change their mind once the wind blows in a different direction. We have the greater responsibility because we know that one day, beloved, one day we're ultimately we're going to be called to give an account. And on that day, God will judge every thought and every deed. Church family, the only worldview that can face up to secularization and its sinister effect on our nation is a biblical worldview. And because we know these things, and because we possess the gospel of Jesus Christ, and because we are God's ambassadors, our silence in the face of sin is not an option. In fact, silence and cloistering ourselves behind these walls is a failure. A failure to be obedient to Christ. For obedience to Christ demands our faithfulness, our steadfastness, our love, our hope, our courage, and our boldness as we engage a broken and falling world in the midst of the storm. And it may be, it may be that if we're not facing persecution on some level, that we need to take a look at the obedience of our walk and see if it resembles Christ's. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, as we have heard difficult words today, uh, our hearts have been touched. As we've heard words that can make us sorrowful and angry and challenge and convict us, we pray, Lord, that we not allow them to leave us unaffected tomorrow and next week and next week and the month after and the year after, but that we would understand what it means to live for your Son, Jesus Christ, and do so boldly in the face of whatever persecution may come our way. May we be faithful to pray for those who are already facing greater persecution than we can imagine. May we be faithful to your Holy Word and to your Son, Jesus Christ, regardless of what may come our way. May we take a bold stand in our communities, in our schools, with government officials in every capacity, Father, around this state, around this nation. May we take a bold stand.
for what we know to be true and right because your word has proclaimed it to be so. Come what may. We're thankful for the testimonies of those who have suffered so much and are even now gathered around your throne whom one day we will see again. We don't, Father, relish going through what many of them went through, but we do want to honor and respect the price that they paid for their faith. We're thankful for the security and the comfort and the liberty that we enjoy now and the blessing that it is, but we understand that it is a fragile thing. May we hold it as a dear and precious freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.